Hi, everybody. A quick message before we begin today's podcast. We have just released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. Stay tuned for the end of the episode for more information. Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. So today on the episode, we are taking a deeper dive into how doulas help to reduce the risks of physical birth trauma. And my guest today is Megan Grant. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So this is kind of like a pre, like, I shouldn't say a prelude, a pre, I don't know. It's after us doing an IG live. We're like, okay, we need like extra time to dive deeper into the magical things you as doulas do to support birthing individuals. And so this is the first question I ask everybody is tell us about you and like what got you interested in like becoming a doula. I love to hear the stories behind how people end up where they are. For sure. So I actually, even before I was a doula, I worked with families. I worked with kids. I worked in sort of special education and behavioral therapy and that realm, uh, specifically with children. And then as I got further and further into that career, I started working with younger and younger kids. And then I eventually got to a point where wasn't quite what I wanted to be doing anymore. Uh, I'd been working sort of independent and solo for a while. I didn't really want to go back to working for a company or an organization, but I didn't really want to keep working on my own the way I was. That also sort of um, coincided with me getting pregnant with my first baby and after sort of a journey with infertility. So I was sort of ready to just take a new step in a new direction. I think this happens to a lot of new parents. You know, they come out of maternity leave or over the course of their their leave, they go, I don't really want to go back to that thing I was doing before. I have different priorities now. And so that really sort of definitely was the first step for me. And then I, my, my oldest was about a a year, just over a year when I took my first doula training. Uh, And part of my impetus for taking a doula training was because I had an extremely difficult and traumatic first birth. I had a doula there. She was lovely. Honestly, there probably wasn't a lot that could have been done in my birth. It was just sort of a weird situation of baby's head position and labor and a failed epidural and all kinds of other things. And then I got a really bad postpartum infection afterwards. I got really sick. And that all sort of really led to this understanding and this observation that there was a ton of support out there for like the crunchy moms or the moms who were breastfeeding exclusively and bed sharing and doing all these things. And there was lots of support for parents who were like, nope, I'm just gonna, this is my thing and I'm doing it and, and 
you know, that's the end of it. But there wasn't a lot in the middle. There wasn't a lot for those parents who like, I want to breastfeed and also give formula sometimes. I want to, you know, use attachment parenting principles, but I don't want to share bed share or I don't want to do these other things. And so there was this middle ground that was missing. And a big piece of that middle ground was just postpartum support generally, that there's not a lot of, or there wasn't a lot of support nine years ago for parents who were struggling in the postpartum period. We talked a good game about postpartum mental health, but nobody was really actively doing anything that made a difference on a large scale. So that really led sort of into my first doula training. And from there, my philosophy really developed into providing truly non-judgmental support. So I don't really care if you're planning a home birth or a hospital birth or an epidural or in a tub or standing on your head singing Yankee Doodle. Uh, you know, my job is to meet you where you're at. And Part of that became out of, that's not always the case in the doula world, just like it's, you know, there's judgmental people in every profession. There's a huge, you know, there's a contingent of doulas who there is a right way to birth and there's a right way to parent. And I saw a lot of new parents coming out of situations either with those doulas or within that philosophy who were traumatized because they hadn't been able to live up to this ideal. At least that was the way they framed it. That is certainly not how I think of it. Um, and so from there, I really just started taking more and more trainings. I moved to a different training organization that centered non-judgmental support as the foundation of doula work. Um, and the second sort of layer of foundation was working with other healthcare providers, as opposed to this idea that we're there to protect clients or stand in opposition. And, you know, it really bloomed and blossomed from there. And then I got pregnant with my second and I hired a doula who I had been working with doing some backup professionally. And that was Alex, who is my business partner now. And after my second was born, I reached out to her. I was like, what do you think about maybe merging and that was sort of where our agency was born from and we've added services over the years we're continually engaging in in further education but really sort of the foundation of of our practice and the doulas who are on our team is meeting families where they're at helping them to meet their goals and sometimes it's about helping them let go of goals that maybe are no longer right for them and so there's a huge piece of that that's physical there's a big piece of that that's mental and there's also a lot of education that goes into it and that's where sort of the education is where physical and emotional and all of that really combine because one of the reasons people trust their doulas is we have the education behind us. We can find them the sources. We can find them the resources and the professionals that they need. Yeah. It's um, like, it's, this is why I love podcasts. This is why I love running a podcast because I get to meet very, like I get to meet different people and I get to learn different perspectives. And, you know, sometimes you know, you sort of think one way and then somebody says something and you're like, and, and, and I like that you were sort of, it's, it's something that I've just like recently been like really kind of mentally, like the wheels kind of spinning around this idea of a spectrum of like normal. Yes. Right. And, and I was just like, and funny enough, this kind of actually came from a book called come as you are by Emily Nagowski. And it was, uh, and it's about the spectrum of like 
women's sexuality. And mm-hmm. she started talking about like, and, and then from there, it's just like, oh, spectrum of like spectrum of normal. And like, you know, at what point is it not, you know, like at what point do we need to intervene and what point do we not intervene? And so, you know, it's just like, it's so interesting to see this coming up recently over and over in different areas, because it really, it challenges our own internal paradigms and it challenges some of the things that we've been taught, right? Um, Even within physiotherapy, right? Absolutely. There's also a spectrum. And so then it's like reframing or rethinking about, okay, so I like how you said meeting people where they're at and then like, how can I best support that person with the particular decisions that they're making. Yeah. So I like that. I like it yeah. a lot. And that's a, that's a big piece of doula work is, you know, I will often say to somebody that as their doula, I am generally the only person in the room that doesn't have an opinion. I am the only person there that doesn't have an idea of what should happen next or what their choices should be or what the recommendations are. I am there 100% to help them meet their goals, whatever those goals look like. Now, am I going to say like, I will, you know, fully recommend someone go against what doctors are recommending in a really serious situation? Of course not. I am not a doctor. I am not a midwife. I don't play one on TV and I do not want the responsibility that those amazing people have. They are superheroes, but that is not my wheelhouse. But if someone's goal, if they have a particular goal in mind and continuing to work towards that goal is not jeopardizing you know, life or safety or health or happiness, then we don't need to steer people in a particular direction. We can let them follow their path. And I've seen that path go in so many different directions. People who planned epidurals, who they get, you know, three quarters of the way through labor and they go, this is, I can do this. I'm fine. I don't need that epidural I was planning. People who were planning epidurals who end up having a really long labor and they're exhausted and just what they need is a nap. And so they have an epidural and they sleep for two hours and they push up and wake, you know, they wake up and push out a baby. And on the postpartum side, especially, this is where we see things really get tripped up is there's so much pressure from medical professionals and society and public health campaigns around how people should feed their babies. And then, you know, if you're not meeting people where they're at, when you start bringing them this information, you're not actually educating them, you're traumatizing them because they can't meet those ideals in that moment. And so you're creating this mom guilt and this sense of shame because you've walked in with this particular idea versus walking in and saying, where are you? Let's talk about that. Let's figure out where you are in this process. And let's figure out where you want to go. If you're happy with where you are right now, great. How do we make this situation as easy and as as simple and organized as possible so that where you're at continues to work for you? If where you're at isn't working, what tools do you need to get there? And when doulas let that be the guiding philosophy, we often find that parents come out of it feeling far more empowered and confident and ready to do this on their own versus if we came in and said, well, no, you've got to make this work you know, here's how you do it. Mm. 
Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, when you're in the middle of an experience, right? Our capacity, our access to resources, our abilities may be limited in that particular moment, right? Um, Versus, you know, three months later where I've had things put in place And I have the support and I have the capacity because maybe I've now been sleeping better and, you know, I've I've kind of moved forward a little bit. The challenge, you know, and sometimes the challenge can be, and I find this within myself, is like when I look back at something and then I say to myself, you know, oh, I should have done this or that. One of the things I try to bring myself back to is like, did I have the capacity? Did I have the resources? Did I have the support? Did I have the knowledge? Did I have all those things at that particular moment in time that that was occurring? And the answer in most cases was no. I have now the benefit of hindsight. So it's easy for me to now go back and be like, oh, I should have done. Well, yeah, you have the benefit of hindsight, but when you're in the middle of something, right, what is the best way for me to move forward with that and not necessarily have that guilt and shame there. Absolutely. That hindsight is 100% 2020. And I think that it's one that a lot of parents struggle with just because Hollywood and, you know, television, even the public, like, don't get me wrong, public health campaigns can do a lot of good. But I think in the parenting realm, I've often seen them do some harm, where there's this ideal parent sort of approach or philosophy or I like pinnacle that there is a pressure to reach you know we're supposed to think that that first six weeks with a newborn is all like newborn photo shoots and like flowing white dresses in a field of wildflowers and let me tell you anyone who can wear a white dress in a couple of weeks after giving birth has a pair that I can only envy because that is not realistic for the most, you know, most of us, most of us are wearing adult diapers. We're leaking from everywhere. And, you know, we haven't showered in three days and there's a baby attached to us. And all we want to do is have a really good cry. You know, that is the reality of, of the first two weeks postpartum for most people. It's not, you know, a white dress in a field of wildflowers taking newborn pictures. So I think that there's a lot of pressure put on on new parents. And I think that the other thing I would add to that list of did I have the resources and did I have the tools was, was that actually what I wanted? Yeah, We don't give ourselves permission to say, I thought that was my goal, but really when I got into it, I realized that was that was not the right goal for me. We're, we have this epic fear of failure in our society. And we have this idea that changing our minds is failure. No, you can change your mind. Nobody bats an eyelash at a university student who changes their major three years into a degree. Why should somebody bat their eyelashes if a person changes their mind three quarters of the way through labor and says, get me all the drugs now? You know, that's not failure. That is changing your mind. That's reevaluating your goals. That's a good thing. You know, reexamining your goals and giving yourself permission to set different goals is something in a way I think we've lost because we, we're all trying to meet this 
perfect image, especially in the age of social media, where there's so much pressure on parents. You sign on to Instagram and you've got all of these influencers who have like perfect hair and makeup and their pre-pregnancy bodies back in like a month. And, you know, we're all going, well, why can't we be like that? Why it worked for her? Why isn't it working for me? We really need to give ourselves and each other permission to change our minds, to reevaluate our goals. And sometimes the goals change because the resources aren't there. You know, and like if you break it down to a really elemental level, my goal might be to make a cheesecake tonight. But if I don't have any cream cheese or sugar in the house, I'm going to have a really hard time making a cheesecake. So I have to reevaluate that goal. In a bigger life context, if you're looking for a particular outcome with, you know, in my realm, in breastfeeding and parenting and giving birth, and then you get into that situation and you don't have the tools that you need, it's okay to change your goal. It's okay to adjust. It's okay to reevaluate. And this comes back to meeting people where they're at, because one of the first questions I ask people is, where are you? Where do you want to be? Because it's not about where I think someone should go. It's about where they want to end up. I can't come in and impose that thought or that agenda on them because it won't be successful. We are most successful in our goals when we're invested in them and when we have the tools and resources. So if you're not invested in the goal, if the goal has become too emotionally difficult or taxing or physically taxing, then it's not the right goal anymore. And it's okay to move on. Yeah. Asking for what you want. I'm, I'm just like, I'm listening to what you're saying. And I was like, yeah, ask, you know, like when people, cause I'll ask, cli- you know, I'll ask clients, like what, what's your goal? Like, what, what do you want? And it takes quite a bit of time and a little, and quite a bit of prompting to really get down to like what people want and why, you know, why they want that in that, in that particular, in that particular way so that I can best support them with getting to what they want and where they want to go. But yeah, like we resolve one particular health aspect and then something else might show up. And so we rejig the goal because what was important at that particular moment now is no longer important or is no longer like an issue, but this other thing pops up. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. And I was also thinking again, there's that spectrum that comes up with the postpartum, right? Yes. Are there individuals who like snap of the fingers are like in white dresses? Great. And, and great, but that's also not everybody, right? Like there's also, it's also okay. If you're wearing diapers and you haven't put on a shirt in three days and like, you don't know when the last time you took a shower was, and you're pretty sure you brushed your teeth this morning, but you're not a hundred. There is absolutely a spectrum. And then even within those sort of places, there's a spectrum of people who, you know, from a mental health capacity where they think they got to that point because they think they need to, or, you know, there's such a spectrum within parenting in terms of how people recover. And I'm sure you see that for sure, because you, you have people who come in, in very different places, even if their description is a similar birthing process and similar tissue trauma and, you know, but the, the impact on their bodies is different. So, you know, we see a spectrum in so many places and, 
I guess what I see is a lot of people have this very rigid black and white binary view of things. And it's not, there is no black and white in parenting. There is no black and white in pregnancy or birth. There is this spectrum within it that you have to find your place on and you have to figure out if you're okay in that place or if you want to move somewhere else. Yeah. hundred, hundred percent. Um, so let me ask, how how long have doulas been around for? So officially as a profession, I'll say sort of 1970s-ish was the first, like when a name was put to it and some really, really bad studies were done on it that would totally not hold up to today's sort of ethical standards uh, or research standards. Um But the word is much older and really the profession, when you think about what a doula does, is as old as birth. You know, yes, now it's someone that you hire to come, but a couple hundred years ago, it was even, you know, a hundred years ago before most births ended up in hospitals, it was your mom or your sister or your aunt or, you know, your grandmother, your cousin, your best friend, you know, someone, you know, birth has always been, I'll say woman, obviously not only women give birth, everybody can, you know, any person can give birth, but historically um, you're talking about people who primarily identified as women and it was, birth was considered sort of the woman's realm and, ran off not ran off but they you know sort of made themselves scarce and it was the women bustling around the home taking care of the other kids taking care of the laboring person so that that role has always existed it's just who has embodied that role has changed and as we as a society have become sort of more reliant on professional standards and regulation and all of that for sort of peace of mind, that role has really evolved. Um, And I would be very remiss if I didn't point out that this role in particular uh, was very much part of uh, Black culture as well, long before white women co-opted the role and the term and all of that. So this is a role that has existed culturally in a lot of other places long before North American and sort of Western European uh, societies got a hold of the idea and turned it into this profession. So there is a long history of the role itself. The profession or the industry is probably more around sort of 40 to 50 years old. And the profession, I think, is in a weird place right now where, like a lot of professions historically, where it took time for sort of standards and protocols and regulations to come into place, doulas, you know, it's a bit of a baby industry. 50 years is not a really long time for an an entire industry to be around. And I think we're heading into that period where we're going to see sort of more standards set and more uh, regulations put in place. I think COVID probably accelerated the timeline on that a little bit, but I think it's been coming for a long time. It's been a conversation in the doula community as long as I've been a doula, which is eight years now. So, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's a bit of a complicated question of how old doulas are, mm. but there's, there's those traditions in a lot of places. And then as a, as sort of a formalized profession in the North American context, it's about 50 years old and it's heading probably, I'd say along the similar lines to massage therapy, where down the line, we're going to see some, you know, professional conduct and regulations put in place to really 
clarify what doulas are and the role that we play and how we exist within the healthcare system. Okay. Yeah. I like did not know that. So learning something new every single day. So I want to, I want to talk about, cause we're, we're also talking about, you know, like how doulas can be really supportive in the birthing process. And, and I, my line of questioning may change in the sense of like, how doulas support us to like in our attempts to reduce some of the risks associated with physical trauma, because there are obviously things we can do and there's things that are naturally built in our body to reduce that. But then speaking of spectrums, right. You sort of mentioning that even though you had a doula, like things still can and do happen. Right. So, you know, as much as we want to, uh, and the same thing here with like, what I do is like helping women prepare their pelvic floors. Like we can do and try to set up the environment as best as possible. But what happens in the end is we don't know what's going to come about. So I kind of want to talk about like sort of, you know, things that doulas do in order to support the laboring and birthing process. Um, but then also kind of like what you can't do or what you can't prevent. So let's, let's revisit that spectrum to highlight yeah. that it's not black and white is what I'm <laughs> getting at. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. When you say that is this idea that having a doula creates particular outcomes is part of that binary thinking. I don't have a doula trauma happens. I have a doula. Everything's good. Um, and as much as I wish that was the case, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, the magic things we do. And what I always joke with people is, you know, my magic wand, my doula magic wand is still on back order. It's been on back order since I did my first training eight years ago. If it shows up in the mail, I'll let you know. But in the meantime, what are we looking at? And the reason I say that is a big push as a new industry that was sort of emerging in the 90s, the early aughts, um, the 2010s, really was on this idea that having a doula re reduced cesarean rates, reduced epidural use, reduced, you know, feelings of trauma and postpartum depression. And in all honesty, if there is one thing I have learned seeing, you know, triple digit babies being born in eight years in this industry is a birth is going to happen the way a birth is going to happen. And I don't view my role as coming in to change outcomes because that's an impossible thing to promise. I do view my role as coming in and helping people make peace with the processes that happens. So my goal is not to prevent a cesarean or prevent a tear or prevent, you know, a scary situation because they happen. It's just that is the nature of human bodies and birth and everything else. My job is to make sure that people felt like they had choice and agency and a voice and that they feel like as a situation unfolded, they were supported. Because what we've found is when people feel supported, they come out of it feeling less traumatized, even if the birth was scary. There is, you know, that mental health component is often overlooked, but birth trauma and PTSD are very real things. But just like we know with first responders and healthcare workers who experience PTSD, 
The support is what makes the difference to the long-term diagnosis. Knowing that you were heard, knowing you were listened to, knowing you had somewhere afterwards to debrief, like as doulas, we do postpartum visits with our clients, which is a chance for them to say, okay, what happened in that birth? Like all I remember is people yelling and screaming and, you know, chaos. What was going on? Debrief it with me. So that is a huge piece of it. Now, that is not to say that there are not things we can do to help make the process easier. Absolutely, as doulas, we are trained in positioning and comfort measures and, you know, the physiology of birth so that if there are things that can be done to help a cervix dilate, for example, and this actually, I almost think this comes into more play when you have a client with an epidural because they don't have the same physical sensation and feedback from their body. So as a doula, this is where I say, well, if you've got, you know, one side of your cervix is dilating and the other side isn't, we got to do something to get baby's head to apply differently to the cervix so that that side does too. So I might get them into a different position or I might bring out a peanut ball or I might honestly just huck their leg up over my shoulder, which I'm sure as a physiotherapist, you're cringing because my physiotherapist and chiropractors, like you have the least ergonomic job on the face of the planet um, with the positions you pretzel yourself into in a hospital room. Because often I'm also trying to stay out of partner's way and the nurse's way and the machines and the wires. So I've gotten into some really strange places in a birthing suite. Um, But it's really about, you know, maximizing the knowledge we have and working with the person's body. Birth is a really complicated dance between two people and that baby is a terrible communicator. So you sort of have to guess at what's going to happen next. The beauty of doulas is we can anticipate some of that we can say you know there hasn't been a lot of progress you and I are going to try this thing but if that hasn't changed anything the next time they check these might be what they they suggest I've also looked at my clients and said don't panic in about 15 seconds about 20 people are going to burst through that door baby's fine you're fine but they're going to come in and check because I see something go wonky on a monitor um and I don't want them to freak out because I want them to understand what's coming next and honestly that anticipation and that forewarning can be a big factor because you know this as much as I know this when people are stressed and they tense, their shoulders come up to their ears. And when your shoulders come up, your pelvic floor comes up too. And that is the exact opposite of what you need to happen for a baby to come out. So, you know, keeping that peace in a room, keeping people, and that peace looks different for everybody. Some people want it to feel like a spa. Other people, it's literally a birthday party. You know, peace looks different for every person. And again, our goal is to figure out where people are at and meet them on that journey. And that can look like a lot of different things in a birthing room. I can't prevent a cesarean from happening any more than I can ensure breastfeeding will be a success, but I can hold your hand through the process. I can help you understand what's coming next. And I can help you understand what your options and your choices are so that you feel like you had agency and power throughout the experience. Yeah. And and that's, you know, sort of how I think about it when I do, you know, prenatal pelvic floor training, right? It's like, we're going to do some exercises to help your muscles and help you optimize and give you the information that you need to like understand and just understand like things that could happen. And also knowing that 
Like there are things we can do. So even if X happens or Z happens, we can't prevent it because again, we don't, the birth is going to happen the way the birth is going to happen. But I, I also feel like my clients really sort of also appreciate feeling like, okay, like I, I was an active participant and I felt like I was doing the things that I could do with the knowledge I had. And like, I'm okay with what happened on the other end. And can you support me with the X, Y, or Z recovery piece? And so I, I find that that also helps individuals as well when they have like the knowledge and information and feel like, okay, I, you know, I was, I was doing what I could and like, this is the outcome and I'm okay with that. And I actually think that was one of the reasons I was so excited when you and I connected about your prenatal program is over, you know, when I first became a doula, maybe, maybe your OB or midwife mentioned pelvic floor physiotherapy in your six week discharge appointment, maybe but it was a pretty small percentage. And then over the last eight years, I've seen this huge shift where it's almost like ubiquitous at every single, uh, you know, discharge appointment from obstetric care is, you know, we recommend a pelvic floor physiotherapist, but that information is still coming at the end of this big experience. And so, you know, we started talking to people about, um, you know, thinking about engaging in these, these preventative healthcare measures beforehand. And I don't necessarily describe it to people as, you know, you're going to have a better birth because I can't guarantee anything, but if nothing else, I mean, pregnancy is really hard on the body. It's really hard on the back and the hips, your center of gravity shifts forward. If nothing else, having a stronger pelvic floor and having better sort of biofeedback with your body is just going to make pregnancy more comfortable, even if it changes absolutely nothing about your birth. Um, even if you're having a scheduled cesarean, being like, I remember my pregnancies and I remember being nine months pregnant. And I remember thinking that it was total BS and this was nonsense. And if men had been the ones having pregnancy, we would have figured out how to outsource this years ago. Uh, so, you know, if we can do things prenatally that even just help ease some of those common pregnancy discomforts, that has a benefit because you're also going into labor and birth, not already in, in discomfort. There's a big piece to that, that people I think underestimate when you walk into a hospital and you've been in discomfort and pain for the last six weeks, you're already at the end of your capacity for discomfort mm. and for pain because you just want it to stop. Yeah. And now you're like at the finish line and you have no patience for dealing with anything else. So, you know, really even just easing some of those common pregnancy discomforts in that last trimester can make a big difference moving forward into labor and into postpartum. Will it prevent a tear? Maybe not. Will it, you know, maybe mean you don't need pelvic floor physio after? Maybe, but there are benefits to doing it, even if it doesn't change those outcomes. There are benefits physically in the moment. Yeah, and I would add to, to that, like just thinking about like, having some knowledge and like connection. So like being able to feel your pelvic floor move before birthing is like, oh, that's what that feels like, right? Gives you the opportunity to feel what it feels like postpartum and then be able to sort of be like, oh, okay, I, I notice a difference here. 
probably need to spend some attention or, oh, this really feels off. Probably need to talk to somebody about that. Also, safe exercise, right? Like what could you be doing in the early six months? You know, because there are some people who like I'm a go-getter, right? So I recognize people want to do things, but what can you do safely? What are the exercises that are safe for you to to practice in that early six-week period so that by the time you come and see me, you've already been kind of engaging with your muscles in a safe kind of capacity that kind of gives you a little bit of a head start, right? Because if you didn't know what to do, then you wouldn't be doing it in the first six weeks. Well, it's like the the person I described on our IG live yesterday who it, you know, three days postpartum with twins was installing baseboard heaters. Maybe not the kind of exercise where crouching down and kneeling is super healthy for your pelvic floor. So, and yeah, it's definitely, and, you know, to go back that biofeedback is, you know, we don't talk about our pelvic floor or pelvic health in high school or university or young adulthood. And so then we get to pregnancy and everything feels different. And then we get into a birthing room and we've got somebody screaming at us to push and use our pelvic floor muscles to push. And we've never engaged with those muscles in a deliberate, intentional way before. So I will say, you know, as a doula in the birthing room, I haven't seen, you know, reduction in tears in my clients who have done prenatal physio, but I have seen shorter pushing times because they know where those muscles are. They know how to engage them, even with an epidural, which can sometimes make it harder to connect to those muscles. You know, they are much more aware of how that region of their body functions and how to do things intentionally with that region. And that makes a huge difference prenatally and postpartum because postpartum you also get that biofeedback of that doesn't feel right maybe I should stop doing that you know pain exists for a reason it's our body telling us information and you know postpartum knowing that that isn't supposed to feel that way is huge so many of my clients will message me after giving birth and say is this normal yup that's normal. Or sometimes it's no, that is not normal. You need to call your care provider like yesterday. Um, but for the most part, it's, yep, that is totally normal. But a lot of times I also say it's totally normal, but it's a sign that you're doing too much. Yeah. You know, there, so I find that the people who take the time to engage in prenatal pelvic floor physio are a lot more aware postpartum of how their body is responding and how they're healing. And they just have a better knowledge of how their body is supposed to feel and function, which is only to their benefit as they heal and they start to recover and start to get back to normal activities as well. Yeah. And I would add to say that my perspective on the, excuse me, perineal, like stretching perineal massage. I'm my, my kind of like the way that I'm sort of coming at those practicing those techniques is because the evidence is not great. And, and the studies (laughs) are, it's very difficult because you can't take the same person and have them do perineal massage and then rewind and have them not do it and see if the outcome would have been different. Yeah. You you just, you can't like, that's just not a thing. Right. So, you know, you're taking one group of people and another group of people, some are doing it, some are not. What's the outcomes. 
it's, it's still kind of hard to apply that to like everybody on a broad spectrum. So it's questionable science for sure. <laughs> but here's, here's where my, my frame, my frame comes from. And it comes from the perspective of sort of like pain education and the opportunity with doing, let's say a perineal stretch is the opportunity to sense a degree of discomfort or an unpleasant sensation so that you say, oh, that's an unpleasant sensation. However, no, I'm not damaging my tissue. I can practice my breathing techniques, my pain coping strategies, and I become a little more confident that when I'm met with that unpleasant sensation and it going to be a bit bigger than what in that perineal stretching, I'm not going to be afraid or as afraid because I am familiar. I've, I've been here. So I can try to relax and move with the process and use the biofeedback that I've learned on how to push and how to relax my pelvic floor, right? Because when we feel pain, right? If I stub my thumb in the door, the first thing I want to do is kind of grab it and squeeze and bring my shoulders to my ears. And so we create tension in the body in order to cope with the pain, right? This is kind of like, okay, can I? Am I able to relax to some extent, despite the fact that this unpleasant sensation is here? That's kind of the angle at which I sort of come at it is more just like building familiarity and practicing the various coping strategies that may or may not result in a tear, but at least the person feeling like, okay, well, I'm, I'm kind of engaging with this process. Yeah. I, I, so I will admit as a doula, I like to pass the buck on this one a little bit because the, the research is a little bit sketchy. So I am like the first person to say, you know, this is one of those questions you should really ask a qualified medical provider. <laughs> um, I will say that as a doula, my biggest, the thing I run into the most and the thing that causes me the most concern with it is like 95% of people who are doing perineal stretching are not doing so under the supervision um, or direction of a qualified medical provider. They've looked something up on the internet, they're rubbing olive oil into their perineum and like, they're just going at it. And I actually went, there was, it was really big about five years ago. It was like perineal stretching was everywhere about five years ago. Um, And I remember, cause it was like right at the beginning of my second pregnancy and I was like, no, no, we're not going to do this. My vagina doesn't need olive oil. Like we're good. Um, and so I, I saw as a doula that there were so many people who were doing it independently based on like a YouTube video or a page they read on the internet that I actually saw an increase in my clients in severe tears and a big, when I started doing some looking into it, the thing about the perineal and the vaginal tissue is it's absolutely designed to stretch, but it's designed to stretch with the presence of particular hormones Mm. that are released during labor. And so if you are stretching a perineum when there's no prostaglandin being released, when there's no um, oxytocin and all of that being released, then that tissue is actually stiffer to begin with. And so you're stretching something 
in a way that it isn't necessarily going to be beneficial when those hormones are happening uh, because the, that's when the body is designed to do those stretches. So I always tell people if it's something that they want to do, that there's not a ton of evidence that it will do harm. There's not a ton of evidence that it will make great strides or changes in the outcome of their birth, but that if they're going to do it, they shouldn't just like decide to do it and go at it, that they really need to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing, because if you do it wrong, you can do damage. You can 100% cause unnecessary inflammation happening. And I give, there are like, I have parameters that like we talk about like what is to be expected. And I actually let them feel it, right? Because Mm -hmm. I will do it if they're in the clinic anyways. I'll be like, this is sort of what you should feel like. And here's what I want you to practice when you do it. And then we go over all the, um, you know, parameters and what to consider, when to do it, when not to do it. Um, So all of those pieces. So there's, there's a little bit more that like goes in to the process that like, you're not going to necessarily get um, from a Google document. Just like handing a piece of paper to say, here, do your Kegels is like, that's probably not going to have all the, you know, nuances of like all the things that are involved with doing a proper pelvic floor contraction. So, you know, while I appreciate it can be helpful, it's more helpful than not having it at all. Sometimes. And then I like, as I'm saying it, I'm like, yeah, but you know what? The piece of paper, then they do it, the Kegels too much, then they make their pelvic floor tight. So you got to be really careful when taking information off the internet. (laughs) Yeah, I will say when, what I find is people who get that piece of paper, especially from like their healthcare provider, it triggers in their mind, oh, maybe I need to do something. And then I have the opportunity as their doula to have a conversation of like, yes, you should be doing Kegels, but also maybe you shouldn't be. And I'm not the one who can tell you what you need to do. So you, here's where you need to go. Um, and honestly, I think that's the biggest benefit of the doula is we get to say what's normal and what's not. And we know who to see. We can say, if that's what you're feeling, you need a pelvic floor physiotherapist. If that's what you're feeling, you need a massage therapist or a breastfeeding consultant. You know, we're able to direct people to the resources. I liken us to like the spider in the middle of a web and web is the client's postpartum uh, experience. And we know where all of the connections are because new parents do not have the brain capacity to keep all of those lines in order. And so, you know, and, and this is the thing with, you know, with the stretching to go back to that is I don't have a problem with clients doing it again, meeting them where they're at. I just don't want them to hurt themselves. Yep. So I want them to talk to whether it's taking your sort of DIY virtual course or seeing you in person or seeing another pelvic floor healthcare provider, you know, Seeing someone or getting a professional's input is really the most important thing, because when you do it based on something you saw on the Internet, um, you you're going to run risks. Yeah, totally. And, and I, you know, I think one of the big key messages I'm sort of getting from you with respect to when we're talking about, like, reducing the risks of like physical trauma is like you, you have the connections to say, okay, right now, like you're in pregnancy, you have pelvic girdle pain, you know, 
massage therapist, maybe a Cairo that does Webster or maybe a physio, you know, and that's already reducing physical, potentially physical trauma, right? Um, you, they're walking into a birth feeling a little bit more comfortable. Maybe they need those support systems afterwards because one thing that we see commonly is like upper back pain and, you know, um, issues with like kind of carpal tunnel like symptoms and like that's physical that can be physically traumatizing too because you're trying to do stuff yet your body is limiting you in some capacity to be able to do that and then there are things we can do about that piece right we can't always prevent the things from happening but when they happen we know the people that we can send you to to help you move through this in a supported way I guess is the key here. Absolutely. Yep. That is absolutely where we're at. Okay. I'm glad that we were able to get all of these pieces together. It's all working out very nicely. Um, What are some common myths about doulas? That we're midwives. (laughs) Okay. Tell tell me more. I don't get this one quite as much now as I did when I first started. When I first started, there was this really common perception that any woman who did non-OB care was a midwife. Um, As doulas, we have zero medical training. No doula should be checking cervixes or taking blood pressure or making medical recommendations. And if a doula is doing those things, run in the other direction because it is the biggest red flag um, that you could possibly come across. It's it's malpractice is what it is. Um, but it's there's this very strong perception that like doulas are midwives and or that if you have a midwife, you don't need a doula because these roles are so interchangeable. But at the end of the day, a midwife is still a medical care provider. Yes, they provide a little bit sort of more personalized and handheld care than maybe an OB at a hospital does, but their job at the end of the day is still medical. They are emotionally supportive, but they're not your support person. They have charting they have to do. They have a baby they need to keep an eye on. They have your vitals that they need to be aware of. So that's their role. So as a doula, when I come into a midwifery birth or when I'm clarifying that, no, I am not a midwife and I cannot deliver your baby, um, you know, really explaining that role is I am that other person. I am the person everybody thinks their midwife will be, but their midwife can't be because their midwife has a job to do. Um, And so that really helps people go, oh, okay, I guess that like that emotional piece. Yes, they're there for me, but they still have other things. Um, And so they're and it's just like people who go into hospital births and think their nurse is going to hold their hand the whole time. No, your nurse is going to come in and do your vitals and then she's going to watch the monitors from the nursing station. And that's because nurses, I mean, especially now where everybody's short staffed, but nurses, you know, also have other roles and other jobs within the unit that they have to meet. So as the doula, you know, I come in and I am the only, I am there only for my client. I'm not, I don't have another client, a patient down the hall to check on because their nurse is on break. I'm not going back and forth between two rooms. I've come awfully close to that with clients who gave birth very close together, but you know, I'm not going back and forth between two rooms. I'm there for you. I'm there the entirety of your labor. There's no shift change. There's no, you know, new doctor, new midwife. There's no, it's been 36 hours. I mean, some, at some point we do tap out and I've had some long ones, but you know, for the most part, there's, we don't leave at seven o'clock when the shift changes. We're there the whole time. And that's one of the big benefits. And I think the other big myth 
that still pervades sort of the community is that doulas are only for natural, and I say that in air quotes, birth. Um, I will say I could probably count on two hands the number of home births I have attended in eight years, not generally where I go. A lot of my clients have high-risk pregnancies. A lot of them are coming off fertility treatments. They're advanced maternal age, which is a terrible phrase, but you know, uh, they have underlying health conditions that make their pregnancy higher risk. So I personally, as a doula, deal with a lot more hospital births than other doulas do. Uh, but I still do, you know, even within a hospital, I've done plenty of unmedicated births. I've done plenty of medicated births. I've done home births. I've done planned cesareans. You know, there's, this comes back to that non, truly non-judgmental piece and not coming in with an agenda of how birth looks is doulas are for everybody who wants one. Doulas are for anybody who think that they can um, benefit from that kind of support. That being said, and this isn't a myth so much as a, a misconception, doulas are professionals. Doulas offer time and expertise and being on call for whenever a labor happens is a, a big commitment. And we also you know, continually take professional development and ongoing training. Doulas should not be free. Doulas should be charging a, a living wage. There is a big, you know, for a long time, there was a push for doulas to do a lot of pro bono work. Uh, and it actually is really, I think, personally damaged the profession because it's driven a lot of the diversity out of the profession. Um, you know, the majority of doulas who can afford to not take a wage are doulas who have a partner who makes a lot of money, who, you know, has that kind of support. And that's, you know, we need those doulas too, but we also need doulas who come from different life experiences and different backgrounds, different races, different um, sexualities, different genders. And we need all of that in our field. So, you know, one of the, the shifts that's been happening over the last few years and that you know, my agencies and I am really a part of the push for is really making doula work a sustainable career and a sustainable profession so that people don't do this for two years and then move on. They do this and their knowledge is kept within the community. Their experience is kept within the community because that's really how these things grow and develop and how we learn is from the people who have gone before us. And we want the people who have gone before us to be able to stick around longer. So, you know, for anybody who's looking for doulas, there are absolutely organizations out there that do pro bono services for people in need. But if you are looking for a doula, please, 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 I am begging you from the bottom of my heart, make sure you are paying your doulas a living wage so that she or he or they are um, able to remain in the field and really do the job that they're passionate about. Nobody, I promise you, becomes a doula um, because they hate it. Uh, on-call life is is not always the easiest life. You know, three o'clock in the morning, I can be brushing six inches of snow off my car to get to a birth downtown. And let me tell you, at three o'clock in the morning, if there's six inches of snow on my car, I would rather be in my bed. Uh, 
<laughs> so, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a misconception that doulas can and should be offering free services. And it's one that we're really working hard to change. So for all of the people who are listening, please um, look for doulas who are charging living wages, look for doulas that carry insurance. Uh, that's another big one. Look for doulas that have contracts. These are the doulas who take this profession seriously. And as a career, they're the ones who are going to show up and be there for you afterwards as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, that's a really great point. And Cause I, you guys, you guys like, I, I don't know. I don't know how you do the on call. Like, you know, you're literally dropping your life at the split of a second to yeah. be there for somebody that could be five hours, could be 36 hours. You have families and you have children and you have education and courses, like your knowledge and your strategy, right there, you know, that deserves compensation. I mean, it's like so many other woman-centered, female-centered, uterine-having-centered professions, you know, caregivers and the role of caregivers is so often minimized in our society. And, you know, it's, it's no different than midwives who have been fighting for pay equity with the Ontario government for a ridiculous number of years at this point. Uh, like, they had to take it to the human rights Council and they won and they're still fighting for pay equity. It's no different than nurses who are currently, you know, fighting with the government over lack of pay and lack of adequate um, uh, PPE. So all of these professions that are female teachers are another one, you know, female dominated professions are so often undervalued in our society. But we bring so much as doulas, as teachers, as nurses or midwives, you know, these are professions that have existed in a personal capacity for literally thousands of years. You know, midwives and nursing and birth have, and supporting birth have been this caregiver role as long as humans have been giving birth. And we need to start valuing them in a different way because that's the way the knowledge grows. That's the way the knowledge remains. We don't lose information. So, you know, it's really important. I, physiotherapy may not be quite as bad because there's a professional college and all of that. But I still think that overall caregiver professions are so undervalued. But then when somebody has a great nurse or has a great doula, they're so effusive of, I couldn't have done it without this person. Good. Okay. Make sure you're paying living wage then. <laughs> And I was like, this is not my clientele. Obviously, I've been doing this a long time. My clients know that I don't come for free. Um, but there are new doulas and any new doulas who are listening to this in, um, in the podcast, please charge your worth. You are worth every penny. It doesn't matter if you're certified yet or not. Showing up and being on call and being available and the knowledge you have and the support you bring is true, whether you took your training last week or a decade ago. Indeed. Next question is obviously doula services is not the only thing that you offer. No. What, what else, you know, what else, um, you know, are you bringing forth toward the, you know, toward the community? So the biggest other service that we offer is prenatal classes. Uh, and we offer a fairly wide spectrum of these. And um, 
the benefit, uh, are they more expensive than a hospital class? Yes, absolutely. But it's when we teach a class, it's catered to specifically that family. So we're really able to address specific concerns and specific questions, specific scenarios. You know, sometimes we teach a baby basics class to parents who are expecting um, a medically fragile baby. So we talk about what NICU life will look like and what happens when you come home and how to set up supports through that period. You know, sometimes I had teach a prenatal class for someone who's having a scheduled cesarean. And I talk about, okay, what does labor feel like? So if you go into labor before your scheduled cesarean, you know what's happening. Um, but we talk about more of like the body and how the body heals from, from surgery like that. What does it look like to bring a baby home when you've just had major abdominal surgery? Because my favorite part about cesareans is how we do major abdominal surgery on people. And then we hand them a baby and send them home 48 hours later. And we say, have fun, good luck. Uh, and I say that with a whole lot of sarcasm, um, you know, we don't send people home from a knee replacement surgery after 48 hours and say, ha, have fun, good luck. We say, these are the things you need to do. We don't do that with new parents and we need to, we need to send them to pelvic floor physio. We need to teach them how to help their body recover. So, you know, a lot of these classes can be personalized and geared to what, people are specifically looking for. And obviously, you know, there's a baseline curriculum of anatomy and physiology of birth and what the stages of labor look like. But what I found over the years is the benefits of private classes are it's on your schedule, it's in your home, and there's no other couples asking scary questions that put dangerous thoughts in your head that you didn't have before, and now you're suddenly freaking out about. Um, because that's a really common thing that happens is couples will go into a group class and another pregnant person has a very specific question that's that, like their scenario, and then somebody else goes, wait, that can happen? And all of a sudden they're worried it's gonna to happen to them. That doesn't happen in my classes. I also have the benefit of seeing so many different hospitals and knowing what is actually possible and what is hospital policy. And I've actually been able to, in individual births, say to, to nurses, well, I've seen nurses at, at this hospital do this thing. Do you think we could try it here? And I'm able to sort of shift some of those perceptions, even within the other practitioners that we come in contact with, because, well, if they're doing it at that hospital, maybe we can do it at this hospital. And so things can shift. And so, you know, when you take a class with a private class with someone like me or my business partner, we're really able to get into some of those nuances in a way that a group class or a public class can't. We do offer other services, planning services. Um, I will be honest, we have not been doing belly binding since the start of the pandemic. It's not really possible to belly bind and not be up in somebody's face. Um, so we had put that on hold. But, you know, planning sessions are always an option. We have some, you know, we've got a very wide range of classes. All of those are sort of designed for people who need a little bit of help planning or they need, you know, some information, but they either don't want or can't afford or aren't looking for someone the day of. You know, not everybody wants someone they've just met in their room while they're doing a very vulnerable thing and giving birth, but they still want that knowledge and expertise. And so engaging in a planning session or a class is a way to get a lot of that knowledge and then have sort of your privacy or your time with just your partner on the day of. Having options 
is really good because it allows people to make decisions about where they're at. Yeah. Not everybody wants a pelvic floor physio all up in their stuff. So, but they still want the information, right? And that was like, that's what gave birth to my like DIY program. It's like, here's the information I teach. And like, here's the models. And like, here's, you know, my, my, you know, people laugh when I bring out my rubber chicken. Yes, I have a rubber chicken. I love serves- the rubber chicken. I just about fell out of my desk chair laughing at the rubber chicken. I And I will not lie. First thing I thought was, I need a rubber chicken for my classes. <laughs> That was because I've watched your program uh, and I love it. And I love the information because it's so accessible and it's so, you know, you don't need to know a lot of medical speak or, you know, body speak even really it's, it's accessible on a very sort of basic everyday person level, which is amazing. But the, the rubber chicken was my favorite part. Yeah. Well, so I try to bring out analogies and, and metaphors and, other visualizations, because, you know, connecting to a part of your body that like works is, you know, like you don't really think about it until like something happens. So like, how do I connect to this place that I don't really have to think about for the most part? So, you know, I try to find creative ways to like get people to connect to what I'm saying, especially if I don't have my hands on them. Right. And I recognize not everybody wants that. Not everybody can afford that. So, you know, it's, it's creating options so that we can meet people where, you know, where they're at and still, you know, be able to access uh, knowledge and care. Most important question is where can people find you? follow you, learn more about your services, get you, you know, where do they do that? For sure. So I personally work out of our Toronto agency. And so you can find us at torontofamilydoulas.com. You can find us on social media, uh, Facebook, I think it's T-O Family Doulas, Instagram, because Instagram likes underscores is Toronto underscore family underscore doulas. You can also, though, if you are not in the GTA, we also have a Hamilton agency, which is Hamilton family doulas, uh, very similar hashtags, Hamilton underscore family underscore doulas. And we also have family doulas of Ottawa, if you are in the Ottawa Gatineau region. So we do have agencies sort of across the province. All of our agencies practice very similarly to how I do. There's a reason I'm one of the owners. Um, and so that philosophy is, is sort of across the board and all of the doulas that we hire for our teams also have that philosophy of, of under, of, um, meeting people where they're at. And, you know, in terms of getting me, it doesn't matter where you are. I can teach a virtual class to anywhere. I recently taught, um, a prenatal class for someone who was in the UAE, you know, and so it doesn't have to even be. Ontario or Canada, I can teach a prenatal class. The physiology of birth is the same regardless of where you're giving birth. Uh, As our our planning sessions, you know, we can do those with anybody and for anybody. And the other place to find us and to get a lot of that educational material that we provide and more like almost like this, where we're doing episodes with guests and we're bringing more information is our channel Birth and Baby Talk. So there's a YouTube page, there's a Facebook page and birth underscore baby 
no, birth underscore and underscore baby underscore talk is the birth and baby talk Instagram. A lot of the information is there. We do weekly, sorry, bi-weekly now episodes Wednesdays at noon, uh, starting as of next Wednesday, it will be bi-weekly. So the first and the third, and we have guests you're coming on to join us in November to talk about pelvic health. Uh, we have all kinds of different guests. There was recently an Ayurveda, uh, expert who was on chatting with us. So, um, you know, we, we like to bring the information that people might not find on their own. We like to bring the information that people uh, haven't necessarily found. And we also really like to highlight uh, Canadian products and Canadian businesses and local small businesses um, so that we're really pr protecting and preserving sort of the community within our own areas. Amazing. And the beauty of virtual, you know, in your case, being allowed to support anybody. Unfortunately, I do virtual, but I'm limited to Ontario because that's where I'm regulated. Uh, but that's beautiful that like you're able to offer the support to anyone anywhere. And if everybody's like, what were those hashtags and what, and where do I click and where do I find, please do not worry. We will have all of the links, all of the hashtags, website, and all of that information will be in the show notes. So in the description of this episode at the bottom, it'll be like contact info for Megan and all of the links will be there to make it really easy for you to get in contact with Megan. Thank you so much for taking time to like go on this journey. I like what I planned for this podcast episode totally changed. And that is super cool. And that's why I don't like scripting, but I like a, to have a framework wherever the conversation, whatever the message needs to be is what it'll be. So thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge and like having this awesome chat with me. It was my pleasure. And of course, we want to thank our listeners for checking in with us on a weekly basis. Yes, every week we release a new podcast, new topics, new guests. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of that. And if you know anybody who is expecting, please share the podcast episode out with them because you don't know what might be of value to them. So share it out and we'll, we'll connect with everybody on the next podcast. Bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for hanging out. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have recently released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. And in this mini training, I take you through what pain is, how labor pain is different than like an acute ankle sprain type of pain. I talk about the three different ways that you can work with pain and then at the end, I actually teach three different ways that you can work with labor pain to have a more positive birth experience. If you would like to access this free mini training, you can go to courses.ecophysio.com forward slash mini training, or you can look in the description of today's podcast episode at the end of the description, a link will be there for you to get the free mini training. Hope to connect with you there. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. 
Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.